Today, we have Chris, our student ministries director, preaching today. Please give him a warm welcome. Thank you for that very loud uh, round of applause. I could hear that all the way here today. Um, hello, Regeneration. Uh, as Stephanie said, I'm Chris. I'm the, the director of student ministries. When Pastor Albert first approached me to do the, the lesson today, um, he asked me to spend some time praying on, on what I felt the church needed to hear. And I did. I think for many of us, the last seven months have been a struggle. We have found ourselves maybe losing hope, maybe getting angry, maybe getting bitter, resentful, maybe even cruel and unloving. We chalk it up to a bad day, a bad week, a bad season, a product of the time of COVID. And this is somewhat true. But as Christians, our struggles go deeper than the surface level. They are deeper than just the physical or the mental. As Christians, we are part of a spiritual war, a war between light and darkness, good and evil, heaven and hell, and Christ and Satan. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul in this letter makes it very clear that we are part of a war, that we're to stand firm and put on the full armor of God and stand firm against the devil. Throughout scripture, the Christian life is compared to war. We're compared to soldiers, to warriors. At the end of his life, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. During his ministry, he said, I fight not as one who beats air. He told Timothy to be a soldier who endures. Throughout scripture, we see spiritual battles occurring. Jesus' own ministry began with a battle with Satan in the desert. After having fasted for 40 days, Jesus was approached by Satan and tempted three different times. At the end of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan attacked Jesus again, leading to Jesus to sweat as if great drops of blood. One thing we can definitely take away from this is that whether you're at the beginning of your walk or nearing the end of it or throughout it, you're going to still be in battle, and it will likely have gotten harder. Christians tend to fall into two camps, in my experience, when it comes to spiritual warfare. Either everything is from the devil, or nothing is. Both camps pose a problem. In the first camp, where everything is from the devil, there's a lack of responsibility that takes place. Every temptation, every ill that befalls them is the responsibility of someone else, and the work they need to do in their own life falls to the side. In James, we see we are to take responsibility for our temptations. In James 1, verses 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. As we see here, we are tempted by things of our own desire. These things create footholds and strongholds for Satan to use as a battle post against us. If we blame everything on the devil, including the root of our desire and temptation, we cannot break down those footholds and strongholds. But the latter camp, 
The camp that says nothing is of the devil is at the most risk of falling prey to the devil and his schemes. Baudelaire said the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. And church, this is true. To understand spiritual warfare, we must understand our adversary. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, we read, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The Bible warns us that Satan is there, waiting, seeking for one of us to stumble, that he can pounce on us and use it against us and harm our witness. We see that the devil is described as a tempter, the father of lies, the god of this world, the ruler of this world. We know of Satan's character that he denies the word of God, that he questions the character of God, that he entices believers to ignore the commands of God. Throughout scripture, we see Satan consistently remains the opponent of God's followers, seeking to lead them in rebellion against their creator. All of these things are inverse of the characteristics of God. So when it comes to identifying spiritual attacks in your life, we can place what is occurring against the characteristics of God. If you're experiencing confusion or guilt, but not conviction, that may be a spiritual attack. If we know the devil is the father of lies, he's going to create confusion. And because God reminds us in his word that he is not the author of confusion, but of peace in 1 Corinthians, and he tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if we're experiencing confusion and guilt, but not conviction, that's not coming from God. If you're experiencing an onslaught of despair, we can know that this is not from God. God doesn't create despair. In Kings 19, Elijah the prophet, who by all accounts was a great man of God, he had led the battle against false idol and resisted those who stood against God. In all eyes, he was a hero, respected and honored. And yet, right after this great victory and success, he, he faced extreme warfare. He ran for his life in fear. Despair and darkness gripped him, and he seemed to have forgotten everything that God had just done on behalf of his people. And God met him where he was. He sent an angel to encourage him to eat. And then he appeared out to give him comfort. God brings us out of despair. He doesn't create it. If you're experiencing an increased temptation towards sin, we know that can't be of God. Because James 1.13, let no one say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. In the desert, Jesus was engaged in spiritual warfare, as I mentioned earlier. He was being tempted by Satan, not by God. So if you find yourself being tempted, yes, it's your own desires creating the root for that temptation, but it is Satan using those desires to create circumstances to further your temptation. So how do we fight spiritual warfare? How do we engage in battle? How do we assure that we don't fall prey to the schemes of the devil? I believe that if Paul were here today... He would suggest that the best offense is a good defense, good preparation. In Ephesians 6, 14 through 20, Paul walks us through how to prepare for the spiritual warfare that lies ahead of us. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as, your, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, to understand this passage, we have to look in the context of the rest of the book of Ephesians. We see in the first three chapters of Ephesians clear truth about who we are in Christ. We, are, we see that we are blessed. We learn that we have been given adoption and love and predestination and forgiveness and knowledge and understanding and power. We've been taken out of the world. We've been placed into Christ's kingdom. We have been made to do good works. We are no longer of the world, but we are now of God. We are now with God, with Christ, with the Spirit, and with every other believer. We begin to be entirely different people. We are born a new creation. We think through things differently. We talk to each other differently than the world. We act differently. All of these things that mark us as believers are identified within the first three chapters of Ephesians. And we see in chapters 4, 5, and 6 that we are not only different, but we are to live differently from the world. We walk in love and light and in wisdom and walk with the Spirit. And through this, our relationships are different. Our marriages and families are different. The things that we experience and the lens through which we experience the world is completely different from those that are in the world. The summary of the book of Ephesians is fairly simple. We have everything we need right before us. We have the principles of a Christian life laid out like a roadmap for us to follow. But Paul closes out the book with a reminder. And oh, by the way, it's not going to be easy. In spite of the power you've been given, in spite of the wisdom you have and all the truths you know, it doesn't get any easier. And this is where he lays out the whole armor of God, which is in essence living out our identity in Christ by following the commandments of Christ. Now, when it comes to putting on the full armor of God, that's a whole nother lesson that we could go into each individual piece for weeks. But I want you to understand something very important. Putting on the armor of God is not something that you do daily. You aren't strapping on your armor daily. Satan doesn't wait until you have had your morning armor prayer to start attacking you. No, the word that is used for put on is the Greek word in duo. This means to slip on slip into, but it goes deeper than that. The word here has an element of permanence. You put on your armor of God as a believer in Christ and you keep it on. Sure, sometimes it needs repair or your helmet needs upgrading, but you keep on the armor of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now in this section, the Greek word for stronghold is akaruma. This means to fortify through the idea of holding safely. So essentially, we create strongholds, the world creates strongholds by putting human confidence into something or others around us. Thoughts, ideas, reasonings, philosophies, false religions. One of the ways the devil fights us is to create arguments against us. And if we're going to destroy arguments and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, you can't have any doubt as to the character of God. You cannot have any strongholds, those opinions that you're holding fast to about God that aren't true, because these are the places that the devil takes hold. You have to draw near to God. You have to turn to his word. You have to cling to his character and his promises and know them in and out. When Jesus was battling the devil in the wilderness, he used God's word. 
But this wasn't just some whipped out off the cup, oh, I have a Bible verse for that. No, he was able to fight the devil because he knew God's word and promises inside and out. So we will face spiritual warfare, but what if we live out our identity in Christ by following the commands of Christ and we draw near to God and know him and his character and his promises, we will be ready for the warfare. Now the beauty of all this for Christians is a simple truth. It was in fact through the cross that Jesus ultimately defeated the enemy. Through his death he paid the penalty for sin and set believers free from its curse. On the cross, Jesus molded the primary New Testament teaching on how to defeat Satan. Obey God fully, even if doing so means physical death. Believers conquer the enemy not in their own abilities, but in the strength and grace of God that are sufficient in a believer's weakness. In this way, Satan's path is the inverse of our walk. We have been justified, we are sanctified, and we will be glorified. And throughout this process, Satan was defeated when God judged him in the garden and when Jesus was on the cross. He is being overcome as believers proclaim the gospel of forgiveness and turn to Christ, and he will be defeated eternally in final judgment. Satan and his demons continually seek to thwart the plan of God, but the Bible is clear they won't succeed. So there is victory in spiritual warfare. You can know that and experience that and use it. There is victory, but there is no end to the battle for us as Christians. There's no point in our walk where Satan is going to say, ah, I give up, this one's too hard. In fact, the harder we focus on God, the harder Satan is going to wage war against us. We see this in some of the more severe instances of spiritual attack in the Bible. Job's tragic loss Paul's painful thorn were both directed at men of godly renown. Jesus had a conflict at the beginning, but he didn't sweat great drops of blood in the wilderness. That was for the end when he was in the garden. There was, if anything, an intensification of the efforts of the enemy as Christ came closer to accomplishing his goals. So the more you draw closer to God, the more Satan is going to fight you. What wouldn't the devil love more than to harm your witness? But the harder Satan fights you, the better you are at standing firm, the better you are going to be at being aware of his schemes. So we are left now at this point. We've come to understand spiritual warfare. We understand that it exists. We understand our adversary, the devil. We understand the ways in which it can look in our life and as an inverse characteristic of that of God. And we are coming to understand how to face spiritual battles head on. And we even understand that there is victory for God already in the battle. But many of us are still left with the question, why? See, we know God is sovereign. We know that he has control over everything that goes on. We know that Satan was on a leash and he knew he could go no further than what God would allow in Job. We know Satan could sift Peter and the disciples, but only with God's per permission, which we see in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. So when we find ourselves in the midst of spiritual battle, we often ask ourselves, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Why am I experiencing this? Jesus himself on the cross going through his worst day on earth cried out to God asking why. Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. This is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus felt forsaken on the cross, then you can expect moments of despair and questioning when you're going through your own trials. Many of you don't know that I didn't grow up in a particularly Christian home. We were what a lot of you might call creasters. We would go twice a year, once on Christmas, once on Easter's. We said our grace, we were culturally Christian, but we didn't have any real faith. But even in that home, a common refrain I would hear is, it's all part of God's plan. 
I think as Christians, we become inured to this idea, numb to it, of everything being part of God's plan. It's a stopgap that we allow ourselves on the way to figuring it out for ourselves or coming to better understanding. We say it's all part of God's plan while people are experiencing deep spiritual pain and warfare. We say it, but we don't mean it. It's all part of God's plan is just our way of saying, I don't know. We offer it as a door prize. But it's not a door prize. The fact that we go through what we go through spiritually, as painful as may, might be, is part of God's plan, is hope that we can hold on to. Why we go through warfare is part of God's plan. But that's only half the answer. War has a purpose in the Bible. The Bible is a book of many war stories. And all of this war is part of God's plan, and it leads to his glory. In almost every biblical war story, there are one of two things that happen. Either A, the people turn to God and he leads them to victory, or B, the people don't turn to God and lean into their own desires, their own thoughts, their own strongholds, if you will, and God hands them over to be defeated. We see this throughout Judges. Cycle after cycle, the Israelites forsake God and he allows them to be defeated. So the lesson here is to turn towards God. Turn towards God. If that's all there was to this, what a beautiful lesson in spiritual warfare it would be. Turn towards God, grow closer to God, learn his character, love him, turn to him, and you will be victorious in your spiritual battles. But God, in his glory and grace, doesn't let the promise of victory in spiritual warfare end there. No, he promises us so much more than just victory. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors. Culturally, during war and battles, it was common for there to be treasure taken by the victors. You probably heard the refrain, to the victor goes the spoils. And the Bible talks about these spoils. First Chronicles 26, 27. From the spoil won in battles, they dedicated gifts for the maintenance of the house of the Lord. It speaks of spoils that can only be won in battle. And once these spoils are won, they are dedicated to building up God's house. The Bible first mentions spoils in Genesis 14. When a confederation of kings invaded Sodom and Gomorrah, these invaders captured the inhabitants and plundered their possessions. They took all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, then, and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son. When Abram learned his nephew Lot was taken captive, he gathered his small army, I think it was 318 men, a small army of servants, and pursued the enemy's kings. Scripture says he overtook the invaders and smote them and then bought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women and also the people. And along the way he met Melchizedek, king of Salem. Scripture tells us that Abram was moved to tithe to this king of all his plunder. 
Consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. Hebrews 7.4. I want to be clear when I talk about spoils, I'm not talking about earthly gain. I'm talking about spiritual spoils. Out of the spoils won in battles did they dedicate to maintain the house of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul states, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And as we have seen throughout Scripture, God maintains the temple through the spoils gained in battles. We see that Solomon maintained the temple out of a special treasury that was set aside from the spoils of battles won. Battles that were for God's glory led to the spoils to maintain his temple. This is why our trials are meant for more than just surviving, for more than just getting through intact. Through every struggle and battle, God is laying aside resources for us. He's building up a stockpile of experience, hope, courage, wisdom, and love. And those spoils are dedicated to building up and maintaining his body, the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, like we see throughout the Bible, those who put their trust in the Lord are promised victory, receive victory over the enemy, no matter how dire it may look. But God is telling us through his word that he will provide us more than just victory, that he's working out a greater purpose in us for his kingdom, that we will come out of the battle with more spoils than we can handle. So why spiritual warfare? Because if we don't have conflict, if we don't have pressure, if we don't have trials and war, we won't get the spoils and our temple wouldn't be able to be maintained. It would fall apart. The roof would collapse. The pillars would fall down. Our faith would fall into decay. That's why the enemy's plan against us is clear. He wants us to take us out of the battle. He aims to remove all the fight from us so that our temple will crumble. We gain so much more from our spiritual battles than we could ever have if we didn't go through them. We're to take the spoils from battle, not just for ourselves, but for the body of Christ. We take experience that we can share, wisdom that we can provide, empathy to understand. The resources we gain are meant to bring blessings to others. The last seven months have been hard. I myself have faced spiritual battles regularly. Maybe you have as well. Maybe right now you're confused, discouraged, and questioning. You may wonder, I don't see any purpose to the struggle. Why do I have to go any further it? I've had enough. I hope that you can see the fruit, the spoils that comes from spiritual warfare, the resources, strength, spiritual wealth supplied to you in a way that can get you through to the next battle and bring you closer to God than you ever were before the battle. I urge you to take hold of your trial by faith and believe God has allowed it Know that he is using it to make you stronger, to help you take spoils from Satan, to make you a blessing to others, and to sanctify it all to his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we face struggles, we know that we face spiritual battles, and things that we don't always understand the reason why, but we know that it is all part of your sovereign will and that we can come out the other side stronger and closer to you, Lord. So, Lord, I just ask that as we go through this lesson, as we've gone through this lesson and the things that we've heard and come to understand that your spirit move in us to help us better understand those, those battles that we're fighting and to turn to you in them to help maintain our temple, to build it up, so that it doesn't fall into decay. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the, the words that you've given me to share. Lord, I just pray that each one of the members of this church, the whole church of the body of Christ, 
that they can stand firm in their warfare, that they can stand firm in their battles, and through it lead to the glorification of you, Lord. We know that you give us victory, Lord, and we thank you for that. If you have your communion elements, we're going to, to take We start with the body, the remembrance of Christ's body, the bread, remembrance of, of Christ's body broken for us. As you take this and, and remember that sacrifice, just know that I was made for you. We sip the wine in remembrance of the blood spilled for us, in remembrance of that sacrifice that washed us clean of our sin, the blood that washed us clean of our sin.